Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and man, this is the episode everybody's been fucking waiting for, isn't it? Well, before we get into that, please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to Pop Pantheon, follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L O U I E X I V, and. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your Katie cats in your life that they have a good reason to come over, take a listen to the show today. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of the episode and join our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access. Good shit on the way. Good shit already up there. If you join at the icon tier, you're getting at least one bonus episode of the show per month. We're talking about new music. We're taking in-depth lookbacks at old albums like Blackout and Reputation and so many more fun things planned in that area. So get in there. Join Pop Pantheon all access at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And I want to shout out our latest five patrons, Martin O, Michaela H., Rosal G and Garen M. Thank you guys so much for joining Pop Pantheon All Access. Also, merch. We have merch at poppantheonpod.com in our shop. Of course, the legendary and iconic niche legend dad hat is still there. And we have new merch. We now have, in addition to the Pop Pantheon dad hat, drum roll please, the Mirror Superstar t shirt. That's right, the Mirror Superstar t shirt. Listen, you feel less like a Carly, you feel more like an Ariana, like a Billy. Well, this is the t-shirt for you. This is a t-shirt to tell the world that you are killing it, but you're still on the ascent. You've had your hits, but there's still so much good stuff to come. And I really think that's a message we can all get with, right? The shirt is light pink, white writing. It's so cute. I've been wearing it with my pink jeans. It actually looks amazing with the Niche Legend dad hat. Not to say that I'm like a designer or whatever, but like they do go together. So go to Pop Pantheon Pod, get in the shop, get yourself some merch. And without further ado, I'd like to get into our double header episode this week, guys. I really don't know what to say, except that this has been perhaps the most fan-demanded episode or one of the most fan-demanded episodes since the show began. Many feel I have strongly entrenched opinions regarding this artist. I think you will be both surprised and perhaps affirmed by what you hear over the course of the next two episodes. But I did give Miss Catherine Hudson, Katy Perry, a very fair shake and two episodes of my podcast. Not many people have that. So let that stand out there for you. All of you who have accused me of giving her short shrift, I'm devoting two episodes of my sacred podcast and seating ground to the purposeful popstress herself. So this episode, episode one, is going to cover the beginnings of her career, One of the Boys and Teenage Dream. Next week is going to cover Prism, Witness, Smile for a few minutes, and her Pantheon ranking. So it was so much fun to get to dive into all this music. I really do love so much of it. My guest is delightful, funny, insightful, and Katy Perry is a fascinating person to pick apart and talk about. I had the best time making this. I hope you enjoy listening to it. These will be our last two A-sides of the year, so Merry Christmas, and here it is, Pop Pantheon, Rick Caruso's favorite pop star, Katy Perry. Greetings, loved ones. Let's take a journey. 
As I hope this show has borne out, the term pop star is a big tent. There's pop stars who sing and some who rap, some front rock bands, and others are primarily dancers. Some move from radio fodder to something more niche as their careers progress, some go the other way around, and some are, well, not even that popular. But there's a certain category of pop star who is simply that, a capital P, capital S, pop star, period. These are the acts that come to mind when you think of the term in the most generic, platonically idealistic sense. Open the dictionary, look it up, and there are their pictures right next to it. I can think of very few examples who embody this almost unbearably centrist vision of pop stardom more fully than Katy Perry, whose sugar mom aesthetics and gloriously simplistic take on the form dominated the charts at the height of the EDM boom during the post-recession late 2000s and early 2010s. At her peak, Katy Perry didn't try to be anything more or anything less than the most down-the-middle, pop starriest pop star that ever was. And when it was good, baby, it was great. Katy Perry was born Catherine Elizabeth Hudson in 1984 to two Pentecostal pastors in Santa Barbara, California. Perry's early life revolved around religion and was spent moving frequently across the United States as the Hudsons helped establish various churches. During her youth, Katy was not allowed to consume secular pop culture. Everything from Lucky Charm cereal to the music of Michael Jackson were off limits and seen as connections to the devil. She did, however, grow up listening to gospel music and, you guessed it, got her start singing in church. In her teen years, a friend introduced Katy to Alanis Morissette's seminal 1995 album Jagged Little Pill, which inspired Perry to pursue singing and songwriting professionally, leaving high school at 15 to move briefly to Nashville, eventually scoring a record deal and releasing a Christian rock album, Katie Hudson, at the age of 17. The record was a huge flop, selling just 200 copies and her record label soon folded. But Perry was determined soon after deciding to shift to secular music, moving to Los Angeles and taking a cue from her then idol, spent a long while tenaciously pursuing Jagged Little Pill producer Glenn Ballard. Through sheer force of will, Perry eventually convinced Ballard to help develop and eventually sign her to his label imprint with Def Jam, where the two began working on an album. However, the project was shelved by Def Jam and Perry was dropped in 2005. During this period, Perry also was cast by production team The Matrix, famous for producing and writing hits for Avril Lavigne and Liz Fair, as the front woman of their own artist project. An album was recorded, but again, never saw the light of day. Perry had a fourth false start when, in 2005, she was signed by Columbia Records and spent two years recording a record before again being discarded. Perry's luck changed, however, when an A&R rep from Columbia helped her land a new deal with Capitol Records, whose label head Jason Flom saw star quality in the ambitious young singer, giving her a deal and throwing one last potent ingredient into the mix, pop mega producers Max Martin and Dr. Luke. After getting some attention for Buzz single You're So Gay in late 2007, Perry dropped the Martin and Luke co-written Gary Glitter indebted gay-baiting new wave slammer I Kissed a Girl in early 2008. The record became an utter smash, hitting number one on the Hot 100, and finally, seven years after her first record deal, making Katy Perry a pop star.
Katy followed up the success of I Kissed a Girl with her 2008 album One of the Boys, which posited her as a cheeky, mildly titillating, often garish pop rock chick, cutting the difference between Kelly Clarkson and Gwen Stefani. It spun off another couple of hits, including the Martin and Luke-produced 80s dance pop confection Hot and Cold and the guitar-driven Waking Up in Vegas, and sold nearly 2 million records in the U.S. But it was her next act that would forever sear her into pop's Mount Rushmore. In 2010, Perry returned revamped and utterly turbocharged with her third album, Teenage Dream, a record which almost completely dispensed, thankfully, with whatever rock-laden Morissette fetishizing gesture she'd clung to to previously and put its entire pussy into making the frothiest, most synthetic, and unapologetically anthemic version of dance pop imaginable. Here, working primarily with Martin, Luke, and a number of their acolytes, including producer Benny Blanco and secret weapon songwriter Bonnie McKee, Katy Perry went straight for the beating heart of radio fodder, crafting hook upon hook, unencumbered by integrity, depth, or nuance, and scientifically engineered to invade your cerebral cortex. Thematically, the record dealt in all of the classic and most simplistic pop guises. The rush of falling in love, the kiss-off of a breakup, partying a little too hard with your friends, and empowering yourself to be the best you you can be. Perry's image, too, went through a maximalist overhaul, ditching the cutesy, pert, pinup vibes of one of the boys for a fantasia of oversaturated pink and blue wigs, glistening sequined mini dresses, and of course, bras which dispensed billowing plumes of whipped cream from their nipples. The formula, formula though it was, worked exactly as intended. Beginning with its first single, the Golden State celebratory romp California Girls, Teenage Dream was an era-defining juggernaut, becoming the only album this side of Michael Jackson's Bad to produce five number one singles, which After Girls also included Firework, Last Friday Night TGIF, and E.T. The album's pièce de résistance, though, as well as that of Perry's entire discography and perhaps of pop music in the 21st century, was the title track, which cannily weaponizes nostalgia for puppy love as well as perfectly deployed cliché and syncopation to create complete and sublime pop grandeur. Teenage Dream stands to this day as an emblem of the EDM pop boom and a classic example of an imperial phase, a brief moment where Katy Perry could, at least commercially, do no wrong. Katy wrapped up the era with a successful re-release of the record in 2012 that included two more smashes, both of which, Part of Me and Wide Awake, reinterpreted the cotton candy recipe with slightly darker allusions to her recent divorce from comedian Russell Brand to great effect. However, as the decade progressed, things got increasingly wobbly in Katie Land. In 2013, she released her fourth album, Prism, largely reteaming her with the hitmakers of Teenage Dream, namely Martin, Luke, and McKee. This record again attempted to respond to the public narrative of Perry's divorce, as well as to address some more mature themes like Perry's spiritual life and even suicidal ideation, but without ever losing its laser focus on the bubblegum pop on which she'd staked her brand. While a fan favorite, the results, at least in a commercial sense, were mixed. While lead single Roar rode the broadest possible message of uplift to a multiple-week run at number one, as did the semi-controversial trap-eluding bobble Dark Horse. Many of the singles, like Unconditionally, Birthday, and This Is How We Do, underperformed, at least by Teenage Dream standards. 
Following Prism Cycle, Katy took an extended break from releasing albums in the mid-2010s, a time in which pop aesthetics and stardom underwent seismic changes, turning away from the exceedingly bright, genetically engineered dance music of Perry's Peak and towards more inward-facing themes, downcast singer-songwriters, and hip-hop-adjacent lingua franca, none of which were exactly Perry's forte. In 2017, in a seeming attempt to confront this new climate, she released Witness, a record she marketed as quote-unquote purposeful pop or a response to Donald Trump's election and, in classic pop star parlance, her quote-unquote most personal record yet. Following accusations of sexual assault by fellow pop star Kesha, Dr. Luke was notably absent here for the first time since her breakthrough, as was Dream and Prism songwriting savant McKee. Witness was a massive underperformer and a critical laughingstock, taking its place as a canonical flop era and producing a series of derisive singles, including the Migos featuring Bon Appetit and the Taylor Swift diss track Swish Swish, both of which peaked outside the top 40 on the Hot 100. The record did produce one hit, though, the socially conscious reggae disco of Chain to the Rhythm, Katie's last single to break the top 10. Katie's mainstream pop success has never recovered from Witness. Since then, however, she's released one more studio album, 2020 Smile, appeared as a judge on the rebooted version of American Idol, and launched a successful Las Vegas residency, Play. Katy Perry has sold 143 million records worldwide and 110 million digital singles in the U.S. alone. She currently holds the record for the most 5 million selling singles in the United States, with six of her singles selling over 5 million copies. She also holds the record for the most 6 million selling songs, with three of her singles, Firework, Roar, and Dark Horse, all selling over 6 million copies. Katy has nine number one singles in the U.S. and 14 top tens. As mentioned above, Teenage Dream is one of only two albums in the history of popular music to produce five number one singles. She's won five Billboard Music Awards, five American Music Awards, a Brit Award, and a Juno Award, and her acclaimed Super Bowl halftime show performance in 2015 remains to this day the most watched in history. Here with me on the show for an epic two-parter on the career, discography, and legend of Katherine Hudson, a.k.a. Katy Perry is Variety's own Daniel D'Addario. Okay, so I am here with chief TV critic for Variety, Dan D'Addario. Dan, welcome to Pop Pantheon. I am so excited to be here for what I can only imagine is the series finale of Pop Pantheon. (laughs) I've listened to the slander. I have listened to everything you've had to say about Katie, and I am eager to discuss. When we were deciding to do this, because I have joked before that this would be the last episode of the show, but for various reasons, we decided now is the time. Can't get into it. That's whatever. But I was like, we need someone to come on here that is both going to like have a critical eye on this because you are, of course, a critic. So I know I can count on you for that, but also is going to defend her because let's be honest, I have been somewhat derisive to Katie in the past. However, I do want to say just up top that I am a fan and person that respects Katy Perry for 
some of the things that she has done. I don't, I guess what I want to say is I, you can count on me for a fair shake. I'm going to share my opinions, but I don't want it to be like, oh yeah, Louie, like Louie hates Katie and this is just going to be me dragging her the whole time. No, I have spent the last week of my life remembering many, many things that I like about Katy Perry. So I just want to put that out there. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. We're going to have a well-rounded conversation today, I think. And in the inverse, I am a fan, an appreciator, a respecter of Katherine Hudson, but there are notes that I have, directions she went that I'm eager to discuss. Uh And, you know, I think that this will be a very fair-minded assessment of someone for whom we can say the highs were really, really high. The highs were high and the lows, Dan? <laughs> that was going unstated, but yes, the lows also were there. You know, Dan, a wise woman once said, it's a pendulum. It all comes back around. Exactly. It all does come back around. And I think we will be experiencing those swings over the course of this conversation. We will be bearing witness as some might say. Would you be my witness? I'm here. I'm looking at your face right now. I'm here to witness everything you have to say about Katie. I just want to ask, like, would you consider yourself a Katie cat? I don't <laughs> I don't know that I consider myself a Katie cat because I think that has implications of going above and beyond. Yes. I, for instance, much though I'd like to, I haven't hopped on a plane to see her in Vegas. Right. But when I think it was Epix TV put out a TV special of her prismatic tour, I sat my ass down and watched. So I think that I'm <laughs> in the greater tier of Katy Perry appreciators that stops just short of being a Katy cat. Okay, I think that's a good place for you to be. And I'll tell you, I watched the Prismatic Tour too. The Prismatic Tour was epic. Like, as I was looking back on it this time, I think the main thing that I sort of took away from my listen through to prep for this episode is it was just fascinating to look back at like recent history, i.e. Katy's peak years from let's say like 2008 to 2013. And like what we wanted and needed pop stars to do and be, i.e. like what you would see on the Prismatic Tour, like this super glossy, very maximalist version of pop music and pop stardom and how much she kind of was the emblem of that and how much it feels like we have left that time to the past. And like her career trajectory sort of mirroring our embrace of that campy maximalist thing and then her downfall mirroring our growing cultural distaste for that. I don't want to spoil what we're going to get to in the conversation. I will say that the reason why I find Katie such a compelling figure, look, other people have a more coherent vision. Yes. It's true. Other people have greater musical achievement. But the reason why I find Katie so compelling is that She is ambitious, in a sense, beyond what she can achieve. She wants to be (laughs) the world's greatest pop star. She wants to be a gem in the holograms level, cartoonish figure who has the power to bend reality through pop music. And Mm. the fact is, she got pretty darn close for, let's say, Teenage Dream to the Super Bowl. And the fact is that there are very few stars who have emerged in her wake who have that level of ambition, which is, I think, healthier for them, but 
there's something missing in the atmosphere without someone who has that kind of drive to be all things to all people. I agree. And I think the other thing that that makes me think of is with Katie, the work ethic is very on the surface because I think as you were getting at, she's not really the best at any of this stuff, really. Like she's not the best singer. She's not the best dancer. She's not the best songwriter. I pulled out this quote from Jordan Sargent, who is a great critic's review of Witness. And he said, Perry has always had an effort about her. Even dating back to I Kissed a Girl days, her persona as a bubbly but edgy pop star was lacquered on heavily. And I thought that that was like a really smart way of putting it. You always felt the sort of work that was going into this, even into creating kind of like the artifice that was like her trademark or the grandiosity that was this hallmark of her peak era. It never felt like any of it really like came particularly easy for her. And I think the other thing that I think that we should put a pin in at the beginning of this conversation that I think we're going to come back to again is I know you rewatched part of me, the documentary that came out. I I rewatched it recently because we did an episode on Pop Docs. And that doc tries to sell you the story that we're about to get into about her as this credible rock aspirant in the vein of Alanis Morissette who like worshipped Jagged Little Pill and like knocked on Glenn Ballard's door and that whose fans connected to her because of the sort of rawness of her persona and lyrical output which to me rings completely false. And like, I've always found that to be like a dissonant thing that Katy Perry tries to like sell about her pop stardom is the idea that like, that's what it's about. Really, I see her career as a testament to like someone that is willing to toss it all out to be anything to get to the top. Yes. And when I was listening to her music this time, I was like, no shame in your game, girly. Because I don't think there's any shame in that. Yes. But like, this is a story about somebody that fucking worked her ass off, got dropped on her ass numerous fucking times, got back up and was willing to throw out any sense of integrity, whatever it was, to make the biggest pop career happen. Yes. And to me, that is the overarching narrative of the Katy Perry pop experiment. I have two things to say that, and then we'll get into the life story. One is, part of me is this fascinating documentary where you have these testimonials to camera from her fans about Katie has pulled them through. Yeah, right. <laughs> through her depth, integrity, and the richness of her lyrics. Sometimes when I'm at school, people are kind of mean to me, and I listen to her music, and I was like, a light just like lit up in me. We all just want to try and blend in and be normal, but Katie tells us that it's okay to stand out. You made me think that being weird is okay. That it's okay to be different and unique and it's okay to express yourself. And then they cut to her on stage singing like Hummingbird Heartbeat. Exactly. It's uh, <laughs> like the most dissonant yes. thing ever to watch. Yes. And then also we're going to get to Witness, which I think is kind of the moment oh, that everything are sours. are we ever going to get to Witness? It would not be a Katie podcast if we didn't talk about Witness. No. But I think part of the challenge of Witness was that she kind of came before the public and was like, yeah, everything I did before, that was fake. This is real. Mm, And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just pernicious when every other thing she had previously done, what had also been put forward as, no, this is who I am today. And it was just such a hard turn that it was hard to take seriously. And I think there were a lot of people who looked at Witness, myself included, if I'm being ungenerous, as among other things, a calculated move to try to catch the mood of the country. And this time it didn't quite work. 
I will say that it was both to catch the changing mood of music, which I think we were talking about earlier, which is that like the sort of frothy, glistening dance pop of Katie's peak had kind of fallen out of fashion by 2017. Yes. But also the struggle of Katie's career, which is that for pop stars to stay interesting to us on a broad scale, when you reach that phase, the phase that she was at in Witness, let's say, eight, 10 years into the career, you've got to find a way to reveal increasing layers of depth in a way that continues to appeal. That is the trick that takes out 90% of pop stars do not make it past that point. And she, in my mind, hasn't made it past that point because there's something about Katy Perry and having to go deeper in some sort of meaningful way and executing that properly that she has not been able to figure out. Katy Perry attempting to unpeel the onion or give us something more dynamic, less surface level, sort of of the glisten of her peak level material, which is fucking awesome, has been a puzzle that she has not been able to effectively crack. Because I think what we like about her so much kind of is the artifice, yes. is the sort of absolute gusto at which she went for the sugariest, bubblegummiest pop music. The conundrum of Katie to me is that that's all true. And yet I do think for many people in 2022, when they think of a pop star, they still think of her. Absolutely. Because no one has come in her wake and done the exact thing that she did. And I do think there is still an appetite for it. The question is whether the appetite is for it from her, which is something that we and she need to unpack. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning of the ride. Yes. And start with some just light bio with Katy Perry in particular, kind of establishing who she is as a person is important because it informs a lot of like the ethos of her pop stardom in certain ways. So who is Katy Perry? Like where is she born? What's her upbringing like? Katy Perry is from Santa Barbara, California, and she is the child, one of three children of two Pentecostalist ministers. This is important not just because faith and religion play an intermittent role in her musical output, but also because it is a big part of her persona, basically from the first. In terms of press she does, from the very first, she talks about, for instance, how she was not allowed to refer to either deviled eggs or Lucky Charms cereal growing up, because <laughs> luck as a concept, is of the devil, and the devil is not uh -huh. someone we, with whom we want to associate. She grows up like, do you think it would be correct to characterize it as like almost like a cultish kind of situation? I don't know about cult. I only know what Katie has represented to us. Right. Which is to say, very conservative Christian at kind of the edge of Christian and something else. And one thing we can say is that she had an extremely sheltered upbringing for all that she was able to release music as a young teen. She was not a very worldly person and did not have experiences. No, and I think that naivete has been both one of the big pluses in her music because I think that there's almost like a childlike perspective to some of her approach to music. Yes. Even when she tries to be edgy. I mean, even if you think about a song like I Kissed a Girl, that song is aiming at being scandalous but feels very what somebody who grew up in this type of background might find to be a scandal. Absolutely, yes. I feel like this is such a fundamental aspect of her and it's also why some of her like more ponderous music feels uncomfortable to listen to sometimes because even when she's like aiming at depth, she like 
goes for big platitudes, big kind of like religious ideas of good and evil, what a man and a woman are. I mean, that was one theme that I picked up a lot from this. Listen through of her music is she's very entrenched in kind of like men do this and women do this. I mean, I think you PMS like a bitch, you know, I should know. It's not what good girls do. It's not what good girls do. Not how they should behave. It's a, a big theme in her music, I think, comes from this sort of like fundamentalist, sort of like small, simplified worldview that she grew up in as a result of this. That was something that I was sort of gathering. Yes, absolutely. And something that I noticed as well is that she has several songs, I think one each on her main four pop albums. I'm thinking of Waking Up in Vegas, Last Friday Night, This Is How We Do, and Roulette, all of which are about the concept of rebellion and all of which ultimately are pretty tame. Yes, right. All of them are basically songs about having a mild hangover, right? Yeah. You gotta help me out. It's all a blur last night. We need a taxi because you're In Katie's <laughs> yeah. telling, it's like, what is the worst thing you could do? Party with your friends. Right. You get the ambient sense. I think she's had a lot of experiences since, but of someone who had a teenagerhood that was not very eventful, that was mainly spent in church, right. in which it was inculcated in her that anything outside the norm was hugely rebellious. And this concept in her music of we're going to be bad at its best, she's self-aware enough to kind of spin it with a wink of like, yeah. I'm being sexy, wink. And it's actually yeah. this kind of over-exaggerated and kind of grotesque and not actually intended. She's referred to it as soft serve sexuality. But at times it can also feel a little bit like being on like the bus with the drama club and they're all just like so excited that they got to, you know drink soda or whatever like do you know what i mean like it can be a little a hundred percent i think i have enough perspective to say that at times tgif is my least favorite of the big singles from teenage dream and it's because it feels a little bit like okay we're a little past this and i think that's the church girl and her leaping out i think that it's appealing to people because I think that there is a lot of people that grew up in that mindset and feel like they relate to her soft serve version yes. <laughs> of like reaching 20, leaving your small town upbringing in America. This is a very American story. And then sort of like getting to cut loose in this way that is not the Kesha version of it, but you know, you're still essentially a upstanding citizen of the world maybe with christian values underpinning everything that you do but you get to like be just wink wink a little bit naughty and i think that that's something that clearly emanates from her upbringing so as you said she moves to nashville she's very ambitious as i understand it she like the music thing is like something that she like from very early on is driving towards like she really wants to be a singer and as you said one of the things that i was reading about that is a revelation for her is at some point she's able to break outside of like her parents restricting her like she couldn't listen to michael jackson she couldn't listen to any pop music but at some point she like comes across alanis morissette's jagged little pill which is like the revelation of her life essentially yes 
however much this is literally true in terms of it being kind of the first music she encountered that made an impression on her, it's definitely what she has wanted out there because she tells the story in her documentary at among other times. She listens to Jagged Little Pill, specifically You Ought to Know, yeah. and it just, she didn't know music could do this. It really kind of sends her head spinning. It's It's funny that it doesn't really seem much like the music she goes on to make, really, <laughs> even on one of the boys. But she does, in her telling, basically cold contact Glenn Ballard, the legendary producer of Jagged Little Pill. Yeah. And he wakes up with her. He sees in her promise and he becomes kind of her first musical mentor. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But it's just, it's always interesting to me that how much she's held that story up because. I too was someone that was like deeply awakened by Jagged Little Pill. Totally. But it's always funny to me. That's not something that like you hear so much in Katie's music. Like a lot of times when pop stars create that mythology around themselves, you're like, duh. Like when Beyonce talks about discovering Prince and Michael Jackson, you're like, yes. yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, or Janet. No, Britney Janet. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's like, it's like, yeah, okay. Boom. Obvious. Like, you know what I mean? Whereas like, It'll be interesting in actually the era we're about to talk about because I do think maybe that was something she was shooting at in her essentially nine year period or eight year period of like floundering around the music industry. Like there's definitely feels like there's more Alanis gestures during that time period. And like by the time she actually became the Katy Perry that we know and love or whatever yes. <laughs> at this and point. And love and love. And love and love. All right, so <laughs> that journey begins when she's 16 and she releases this Christian album, Katie Hudson. I listened to it. You listened to parts of it. You, let's take a brief moment and talk about what's going on on Katie Hudson. Like, what was your impression of that music? And like, are there any important elements we can pull out of that that feel critical to the artist that she's maturing into? I think the elements that are most important are just as you say, there's a certain black and whiteness to the <laughs> moral palette where yeah. Katie Hudson sees the world as a struggle between good and evil, basically. And that's Pretty par for the course in Christian music, right? But yeah. that, I think, is something that we continue to see. I think her vocals improve a great deal over her career, but I think nothing comes easily for her, which is what we can appreciate about her if we do. And it was very interesting to see her at 16 without the benefit of real producers, frankly, reaching for notes she couldn't hit, going for songs that were not in her wheelhouse. Yeah. It was kind of an interesting encapsulation of her musical personality in that way. I actually think she doesn't sound so bad on this record, surprisingly, no. but I agree with you. I, I think, yeah, there's clearly like growing into her voice that happens. And I completely agree with the sort of like battle of good and evil thing, which is a theme that, as we've pointed out, is one thing that she sticks with. One thing that this record doesn't have that maybe it shares in common with Witness is it's very earnest and heavy handed and like maudlin in this way. That's like, yes. she she has not yet at all 
establish the side of her persona that's the wink the silliness the sort of whipped cream shooting out of her tits like aside from one brief moment here where she speaks in a British accent there is no <laughs> playfulness here it's very self-serious epic on her biblical journey into personhood music that is like maybe only sort of like compelling as lyrical content in the sense that like sometimes it feels like she's sexualizing God yes. I had to keep reminding myself that these songs were about God like in your hands you are a potter molding me she says at one yes. point She says, like, hold me closer. I'm so tired of holding myself, like, about God. <laughs> it's just like, okay, interesting. Like, it's just, yes. this is, like, true spirituality for her. Like, she really sees herself as, like, God's soldier on this album. This is a line throughout her career that I do think is really interesting. For one thing, especially early on in her mainstream career, she used the press to really talk about, I have a Jesus tattoo. This is what my upbringing was like. I believe in God. Yeah. She wore angel wings to the Teenage Dream Grammys. You know, she, I think, both has this as a big part of her life and understands it's a big part of her image. And also, like many people, she has a kind of intriguing and chewy relationship with her parents. And I view Katie Hudson as the album her parents would have been really proud she made. I, I agree. Viewed through that light, I look at things which we'll get to like the second half of Prism, much of Witness. Totally. And I say to myself, okay, that's Katie Hudson. And we'll get to those things. But I think in that way, just having a literal document of, okay, here's where she was at 16, indicates elements of where she ended up. These seven years of pre-fame music is a really intriguing document, I think. That was like one of the best parts of deep diving for this episode for me. It was like, there's a whole half of her career, this like subterranean half of Katy Perry's discography that like provides a lot of clues into like how she slowly morphed into the person that eventually broke through and how she had to kind of like chip away and figure it out. All right, so Katie Hudson, as we said, not a super successful record, even I think by like Christian, adult, whatever you call that genre standards, it's blippy. She gets dropped, she moves to LA, she pursues secular music, and in the mid 2000s starts to pursue Glenn Ballard. Glenn Ballard, as we pointed out, is known, I think by many people as the producer of Jagged Little Pill and co-writer of many of those songs, but is also, the writer of Man in the Mirror, the Michael Jackson song. Is also the writer of Hold On and a lot of those Wilson Phillips songs from the early 90s. So he's like a very prominent pop producer and Katie literally in like a story of tenacity because she is a very tenacious person and I think that that's really worth underscoring like yes she took big leaps and risks and like was so incredibly dedicated to this mission and yes. you know we can talk about how much of that is related to believing in God and Jesus and your destiny and all of that kind of stuff because I do think there's a big connection there so anyway Glenn Ballard takes a liking to her and agrees to sort of help develop her and eventually helps her get a record deal, but they 
work on songs together. He's very impressed with her tenacity and her drive, I think, more than anything else. So eventually, he helps her land a deal with his imprint at Def Jam, and Def Jam hooks her up with The Matrix, who are famous for producing Avril Lavigne's super successful first record. Tell me So they're these kind of like pop, punk, light, rock producers. And Katie both like sets about on a multiple year journey of trying to like record her debut solo album, first with Def Jam and then with Columbia, and also gets placed as like the front woman of the Matrix's artist project, essentially. Yes. If the timeline seems confusing, part of that is because Katy Perry is pretty aware that she did not arrive fully formed. And that goes to her kind of work ethic. And I think is not incredibly proud of this work, nor should she be. <laughs> and I think it's really kind of not part of the narrative. If you watched part of me, it's like, yeah, 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 there were kind of these crazy years and eventually it all worked out. Yeah. So she is the front woman for the album of The Matrix. What it reminded me of vastly more than anything Avril ever put out, it reminded me of the album they produced for Liz Fair. Mm-hmm. but without Liz Fair's ultimate animating personality underneath it. Like, I know that album's controversial, but underneath all the production, you get a sense of who the person Liz Fair is. I think here, it's all the same bits and bobs and tricks with just a voice within the machine that is totally anonymous. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Katy Perry's later music for all that she can give herself over to a producer's mission. Yeah. The best of it is pretty vocals forward and she's at the center of this labyrinth, so to speak, but kind of making herself known. And here she's just in the mix like an 808 drum. She's interchangeable. She could have been anybody. It could have been anybody. It was like that video where they show all the different people who tried out to be on the middle. It's like they just plugged her in. The most fascinating part, I think about both the Matrix album and then we'll just touch briefly on like the debut album that took six years to take shape, is that there is this really interesting moment in music that this is all sitting in this pop rock revivalism that's like I guess linked to Jagged Little Pill maybe just like ancestrally but like really is this Avril and Forward version of pop music that then is seen through through Ashley yes. Kelly Pink that this music is clearly like in conversation with. The other thing it reminded me of is like Lindsay Lohan music soundtracks from this period. Like Lindsay Lohan, Ultimate You from Freaky Friday. Or Lindsay Lohan's two albums for that matter. Or her two albums, right. On which she covers like Edge of Seventeen. She, they were positioning her much more as a rock singer th than a pop singer. A hundred percent. And this was like a big trendy moment for this. And like Katie was clearly also seeing herself functioning in this realm. Like Katie wanted to be or was seeing herself in this mid 2000s period as one of that crew. Like that was clearly where the Matrix album music was positioning her. Yes. And I've always found that interesting because I think one of the things that made Katy Perry successful a couple of years later is that she was 
the linchpin between that and the EDM pop boom. She was able to synthesize and provide the pivot point on one of the boys in Teenage Dream between Kelly Clarkson and super electronic dance pop. That's the most interesting aspect to me of the Matrix album is like just seeing her on that journey where she thought she was going to break through as an Ashley Simpson or as a yes. as a Kelly or as a Pink, essentially. I think there's something really telling about the fact that Ashley Simpson's third and final album comes out the same year as One of the Boys. And if you listen to One of the Boys with Ashley in mind, it is very much kind of like, thanks, I'll take it from here. Because yeah. there are vastly more of the kind of mall rock gestures on one of the boys than she ever does later in her career. But it does have that from the musical elements, the way it's produced to the kind of bratty tongue sticking out persona. Yeah. It's very much what they tried to do with Ashley and couldn't really sustain over years. 100%. And I do think the matrix work is interesting in that regard in that it shows you like, okay, so Christian Rock didn't really work out. Now she's trying this. And I think she was pretty committed. I mean, she was a worked tour artist. Always committed. Everything comes around again. The circus returns to town again. Oh no. Oh yeah. I think that the other question that the Matrix work brings up for me is who is Katy Perry without the bulletproof hooks and songs? Because this is not the best Matrix material either. Like there's nothing on here that stacks up close to Why Can't I Breathe or Complicated or even Shadow on Britney's In the Zone. These are not top shelf Matrix songs. And I think one question that we should sort of have hovering over this entire discussion of Katy is like, who is Katy Perry as an artist without this grade A pop material? Because I think- yes. In every moment where Katy Perry has been successful, it has been because she is either supplied with or helping to create the most memorable hooks of the time period. And so listening back to some of this early music and hearing her in these contexts, it does anonymize her. And I think that that is an interesting window into sort of like Katy's success and the conundrum of Katy's post-success career. It's like, who is Katy Perry if the entire thing isn't hinging upon having the best grade A top shelf pop material. How does the Katy Perry project work without that? And the answer maybe is it doesn't. Yes. In that way, (laughs) I don't mean to make a comparison to the most successful pop star of all time, but a name that kept floating through my mind as I was preparing for this episode was Madonna in this way, which is Madonna is synonymous with pop star success. And when she doesn't succeed, it's all the more noticeable and painful because of her track record. Similarly, when Katie doesn't have material that's on par with some of the defining pop songs of our era, nothing falls flatter. And it's been a challenge for her over the past few years to find out what being a recording artist without being the top pop star in the world would really look like. And I think that's why she spends a lot of time on other endeavors, which we'll move on to talk about later on. All right, so then basically Katie gets dropped from Def Jam in like 05 or so. The Matrix album never sees the light of day or doesn't see the light of day until after she's successful, which whatever. Like they end up throwing that album out after one of the boys. And she gets another deal with Columbia that I think Glenn Ballard basically facilitates for her. And she starts putting together a debut album that is 
sometimes referred to as a Katy Perry and sometimes is I saw referred to as fingerprints. I think it's essentially like a giant batch of songs, some of which move with her through many, many years. Thinking of You is made in this time period. The song Fingerprints itself, which ends up on one of the boys is made in this period. I think there's some speculation that Waking Up in Vegas is also made potentially in this period. It's my impression also that some of those songs ended up with other artists. I'm thinking of I Do Not Hook Up, which ends up with Kelly Clarkson. Yes. Kelly being an aspirational figure for Katie at this time. And also a perfect Katy Perry sort of chaste Christian perspective on sexuality. I mean, I Do Not Hook Up yeah. is essentially a song that's like finger wagging at, it's like a little slut shamey, a little, I am not the type of girl that's gonna go to bed with you easily. Like, you know, I'm not like the other girls. So actually makes almost more sense as a Katy song than as a Kelly song, yes. maybe. Then Katie, as is covered in the documentary, gets dropped pre-putting this record out by Columbia. And there's an A&R executive essentially at Columbia who leaves with her and is like just believes in her so much and like sees the vision for her and like basically shepherds her over to Capitol Records with some of these songs intact. And Capital signs her in 2007, I believe, and takes some of the songs that she's made with Glenn Ballard and Greg Wells and others for these earlier projects. And most critically, throws her into the studio with the two men that will essentially change her life and pop trajectory, who are Max Martin and Dr. Luke. We've touched on Max Martin and Dr. Luke ad nauseum in this podcast. We have an entire episode on Max Martin. I will just shorthand this for people really quickly. They are famous at this point. Max Martin, of course, was famous for the teen pop boom, Britney, Backstreet, and Sync, then reinvented himself with Dr. Luke as his protege in 2004 with Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone. So they are essentially known at this point for working or being the sort of primary producers and writers of the pop rock movement of this moment. They produce many of those big pink songs, You In Your Hand, Who Knew? They produce songs for the Veronicas. They produce Avril songs. So they're essentially like known as dynamite hook producers for this entire movement of pop rock girls. I feel like that's important for understanding like why the label thought they'd be a good match for Katie. I think it can't be underscored enough that for all that we've talked about what she's done, she was like a total blank slate as far as the public was concerned. Yes. And I wish I knew more about what went into I Kissed a Girl because it's kind of not really like any music she went on to make afterwards. Or that she had made before. <laughs> yes. And so in that way, you really feel the Dr. Luke and Max Martin of it all. And from what we can hear, 
there are songs on one of the boys that are quite continuous with what had come before. And there are songs that are pretty huge departures. It is. It's a bit of a smorgasbord. I think the interesting part before we get to I Kissed a Girl is the first song that they float out as like the pre-release single is this song, You're So Gay, which I feel like we have to spend a beat on before we even get to the breakthrough of I Kissed a Girl. I remember this song coming out. I remember Madonna endorsing it. That's how I remember it too. Madonna was doing radio interviews for Hard Candy and would talk it up every chance she got. So why is You're So Gay the sort of introduction to Katy Perry as we know her today? And what is that song about? You're So Gay is not the introduction to Katy Perry because it's so musically pleasing. It's really downbeat and kind of depressing sounding. Yeah. The vocal is kind of talk sung. And it's a breakup song in which Katy breaks up with an effeminate guy who she describes as indecisive. It shares DNA with Hot and Cold, but it's much more explicit about basically calling him the F-slur throughout the song. Uh-huh. If I Kissed a Girl is kind of towing a line, this is leaping right over it. This is her being a provocateur for its own sake, knowing that it will offend people, knowing that it will annoy people, up to the point where it ends with her screaming penis just to yeah. get attention, maybe get a laugh from someone. It's her at her most sheltered and most irritating to me. I cannot defend it, nor I think would I try to. It stinks. But it, it clearly made a mark. And it's in the sort of framing of her as like, I will do anything. I want to be a pop star. What do you got to do to be a pop star? Yes. That's what I hear in this song, And I Kissed a Girl, as like, both songs I don't like, but that got the job done. Like, yes. you know how I was saying she's missing all the cheekiness in that sort of Christian music? Like, the, clearly at some point, it clicked in her head that like, she had to push buttons in some sort of way, and she had to sort of embrace this cheekier side of her personality. What this song reminds me of is Air Sat's Lily Allen core. Oh, sure, yes. But she's not nearly as clever or incisive as Lily Allen is as a lyricist. So it's this clunky, but perhaps effective move at being that character. The way that Lily Allen could like size up elements of culture through her lens. Even musically, this song reminds me of something that like would have fit on All Right Still or something like that. And that's what I always think this song is trying to make Katy Perry into. There's a sort of elbow to your ribs quality to some of the details in it where she is kind of saying to the listener, like, get a load of this guy. Yeah. But yeah. the problem is she's not precise or tactical enough in how she unloads. And so when she's literally saying she wants this guy to hang himself, yeah. it, it's it's like, okay, this is quite the way to express yourself. Like, it's just, she doesn't have a sense of the line or the things that are funny versus the things that are over the top. hundred percent. I hope you hang yourself with your H&M scarf while jacking off listening to Mozart. And that she gets better at in her career in part because she never courts controversy in this obvious a way on records again. Right. I think she just kind of stays away from this stuff going forward. I actually think her best music 
dispenses with the courting controversy thing. Yes. When she finds a way to marry her pop instincts with an open-heartedness or like an earnestness as on Teenage Dream the song, that's when Katy Perry strikes gold for me. But clearly this was effective and I just, I have to underscore how much this and then the official first single of the record I Kissed a Girl, which is produced by Max and Luke and co-written with the iconic Kathy Dennis who was an artist in her own right in the 90s, but also wrote Toxic and Can't Get You Out of My Head. I mean, truly, what a team to have Kathy Dennis, Max Martin, and Dr. Luke working on this song. But clearly, it clicked with them that they needed her to be some sort of rabble rouser. In order to break through, she wasn't just going to be able to be like Mrs. Battle of Good and Evil, like woman on a mission to please God, whatever the fuck that was manifesting as at that point. She needed to say something that grabbed people's attention. And pop stars do need to do that. And like, even though I think both of these songs are very awkward, yes, I think that they really served their purpose. Like they were very effective tactics at this moment. I think they were shameless and they worked. I think it was also, it's easy to forget that it was a much coarser era of pop culture, in my opinion, then than even today. I think if you look at, not to overstate his influence, but the defining voice of celebrity news and information being Perez Hilton. These two songs are very Perez core in terms of just yeah. the way we used to talk about things, the way people used to express themselves. It's completely unrecognizable today. And at the time, I did not care for either of these songs, nor do I today. Yeah. But they're more eyebrow raising in retrospect than they were to me in their moment. In the moment, I was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, I guess. A hundred percent. This is kind of how people talk. Like nothing shocks me. And now I find it shocking. Yeah. And it's clunkiest. I mean, let's talk about I Kissed a Girl in particular. So this is obviously Katie's breakthrough single. What is this song about? How would you describe this record? It's about the concept of rebellion. It's about literally kissing a girl, but one never gets the sense that she is expressing even the tiniest bit of queer desire. It's what's interesting to her is that as the song goes, it felt so wrong, it felt so right. It's that mm. it's about doing something that would make your parents mad. And I think for that reason, people connected to it, not because it was queer, but because it's just of a piece with the sense of her as kind of like, I did something bad, but it wasn't that bad. But isn't this titillating? Isn't this interesting? Firework, the only time she goes near anything queer is to be affirming and <laughs> glad awards level, like positive. Uh huh. An opposite annoyance, honestly. Like, yeah, oh, oh, certainly. But the impulse to kind of wink at the audience and say, we all do something a little bad sometimes, is very much still there. And reminds me of girls that I knew in high school and college who would hook up with other girls to get guys' attention, you know? And yes. that's really what this song is sort of selling to you, which it was a real concept that I think maybe now we have a better understanding of like where that gets awkward culturally for us. But I think your point about this being more garish and flagrantly controversial feeling 
is now versus then. Like at that point, I remember being like annoyed by the fact that she thought that this was controversial. Like I remember that being my kind of main reaction to this was kind of just this feeling of, okay, so what you fucking kissed a girl? Like good for you, bitch. Exactly. And like, look, there's still lyrics in here that are simply unforgivable. Like you're my experimental game. I mean, I don't know if there's any queer person that like hears that lyric and is not like rolling their eyes to the back of their fucking head. Right. There's no queer desire. She doesn't want to kiss a girl. It's just to kind of turn around and giggle with her friends. Exactly. It's just to be like, look what I did. I think the one of the neat tricks of this record as a song and the reason the production is so brilliant. So basically, it just nabs the beat from Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll, the famous new wave song from the 80s. which was such a clever thing on Max and Luke's part to have a foot in rock and roll. It has a giant guitar part to it that leads the song. The song is definitely has elements of rock and roll in it, but feels as though it is essentially leaving behind the since you've been gone, you in your hand sort of just overt pop rock thing. It's a pivot point in that movement. And I think that was also a key to its success. It was providing a way forward for Max and Luke sound and thus for the sound of pop radio at that time that had a foot in the past and a foot in where everything was going. And Katie was providing that linchpin for them. So there's a big shit storm of things that I think makes this song successful and it's everything we've been talking about to this point and i'll say this she goes for it with gusto everything she sinks her teeth into it's like you believe she's invested even if she's not invested in kissing a girl she's invested in whatever this guy's is like 150 million percent like she's like you want you don't want me to be a christian girl good christian girl anymore like i don't need to be that i will be this yes i will be this i'll be whatever the fuck this is and it fucking worked i mean this song was a monster this song was everywhere. Stipulated, I didn't like the song, but my recollection is I was like, oh, this girl's here to stay, at least for an album cycle, because she then spun off multiple more singles that were pretty successful. It would be very easy for a song like this to be a total novelty song, just given the concept of what it's about. It's literally a novelty song. But she wrote it so hard and was like, and I have another thing and another thing. And she was extremely entrepreneurial in this time. She knew it was her moment and she never stopped. It's where that tenacity that kept her moving through all of those adverse situations getting dropped. What do they say? Like success is opportunity meets preparation or whatever. Like that is Katy Perry to a T. Like she was waiting for that moment. When that moment came, there was nothing that was going to get in her way of like capitalizing on it. She was ready to rumble. Yes. So let's talk about the rest of one of the boys, which comes out as we said i kissed a girl is a massive number one smash Katy perry is all of a sudden like part of this new generation of up-and-coming pop girlies of this moment rihanna lady gaga they're all having like kind of big breakthroughs at this exact same moment mm -hmm. let's talk about the rest of one of the boys what is going on musically on the rest of this record so musically it kind of sits between her pre-fame era and teenage dream in the sense that it's this kind of often uneasy mixture of gestures towards Ashley Simpson style pop punk that has been very much defanged. I love thinking about Ashley Simpson as fanged. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> A turn of the dial down, yeah. And then these ballads that to me are not her strongest, but that are very openly saccharine and unabashedly cheesy in a way that has always been with her, but I think is most pronounced here. 
And then undergirding it all is this idea that she is at once obviously and overtly sexual and kind of stepping out of whatever her upbringing was, but in this companionable, easygoing, relatable way. Like there are very few songs about actually being in love or even being in lust. All of her romantic partners on this album are annoying. They're losers. They're unavailable. They're, (laughs) she's breaking up. She's constantly breaking up. And it's kind of like, girls, like, we know what it's like, don't we? And that's kind of the tone that's being evinced. Later on, she would get to this untouchable pop perfection or attempt it. But here she's very much trying to meet listeners where they are, I think. It's almost like a teen's perspective on these things, like who hasn't actually had sex or something. Like there's something like, yes. I, I'm ready to be sexual, but it's in this very earnest, as you said, there's no actual sex in it. She opens the record with the song, One of the Boys, which I think is an instructive song for a number of reasons. One of which is- I agree. One of the opening lines is like, I can belch the alphabet, which is like a fascinating framing of her persona, which is like, she's in this thing where she like, caught between being like a tomboy and being like the most girly, feminized version of pop iconography that you could ever imagine on Teenage Dream or something like that. And this song is like about how she wants to leave behind her tomboy image and become the homecoming queen. She says, I just want to be your homecoming queen. I don't want to be this tomboy anymore. If we're thinking about the story of her as like, I am willing to turn myself into whatever I need to, to be the most effective mass pop star ever, that feels like an important turning point for her where she was like, I am not going to be the tomboy rock girly Ashley Simpson. Like that's not what needs to happen. I'm going to be not one of the boys. I'm going to be like the fucking girl. Like I want to be the girl. I think you are dead right about the song, One of the Boys. I think it's actually kind of inadvertently revealing The lyric that always jumps out to me when she's describing how she learned how to be sexual is, I studied Lolita religiously. I don't think she really understands what she's saying. No. But it's also leaving Lolita and those connotations out of it, it's also just like, yeah, everything she does is the result of study and acting as if in order to get herself there because she does not have this kind of well of teenage experiences to draw on. Right. And I think this gets us to what I think has been a big problem in Katie's career, which is that by the standards of pop stars, it seems as though at the peak of her fame, her fan base was unusually young. Certainly in part of me, you see her constantly talking to children and young teenagers. And I think that they eventually did not follow her, but it's easy to see why young teens connected with this music while their older siblings in college were probably listening. I was in college at this time, listening to Gaga and Rihanna. Exactly. My eyes were rolling into the back of my fucking head when I listened to this album the first time. Yes. I think the line about Lolita is also very important for us to point out here because one of Katy Perry's things that she succeeds with 
at best and things that really hinder her at once is her reliance on cliche. There's a very, very famous Rich Jeswiak Gawker piece yes. that is all 226 cliches uttered by Katy Perry on Prism or something like that. Literally every line out of her mouth in many of these songs is relying on some sort of either colloquial cliche or some sort of pop cultural cliche. And like, it's Lolita. I mean, it's the idea of a teenage dream. I mean, there's so many that you could barely even count them all. She's often sort of calling herself Joan of Arc or Lolita. She falls back on these like broad pop cultural concepts that she makes no attempt to sort of unpack in any sort of dynamic way and just relies on like the most paint by numbers version of what these things are. And pop music can work really well in cliche. And Katie's music certainly does when it does. But it's like, that can often be something that makes you just absolutely cringe at some of her lyrical choices throughout her discography. Yeah, I mean, I think of a song like Roar. It's certainly among her most successful singles. I think it's among the very top tier of her singles. I agree. But the concept of I am woman, hear me roar. Yeah. And I also have the eye of the tiger. It's just like, it's just a mixture of very shopworn cliches that I think among the moving things about Katy Perry is that she doesn't quite realize they're cliches. Yeah, and <laughs> she really believes them. Because she grew up listening to sermons. And so yes. she hears herself say a cliche and is like, that's really good. It kind of reminds me of girls I knew growing up who were like very into quotes, like inspirational quotes. Yeah, exactly. It's like an away message. You and I could look at them and be like, okay, that's a little hackneyed, but- <laughs> There is a reason why they get passed down from generation to generation, I suppose. And it's because they have this kind of power on people. And I'm not immune. I'm not either. And they work really well in pop songs a lot. And she uses them to great effect on many of her biggest hits. I just think it's an interesting punctuation point on the struggle of the Katy Perry project, which is that when the broadness works, it's transcendent. When the broadness doesn't work, you want to put your head through a window. Like, it's so awkward. I think we should talk about another cliche-ridden song called Hot and Cold, which is the second single off of this record. To me, by far the best song on this album and perhaps like the most obvious directional thing towards Teenage Dream. Yes. What's going on in this song? How is this building on sort of the Katy Perry that is established on I Kissed a Girl and like the persona, et cetera? Hot and Cold to me is the most in conversation with other pop stars of this moment in a really constructive way, which is that it has a kind of verve and energy that doesn't just feel like copying. It feels like this song has a pretty crystalline point. She's dating someone indecisive and it gets it across in a very energetic, fun way that doesn't feel like a put on or like she's being a scold, which are two things that are happening on one of the boys that I mm. like a lot less, which are when she's either hectoring someone in a kind of mean spirited way or that she's in persona in such an obvious way. This is just pretty relatable, pretty fun. The use of reversals, hot, cold, yes, no, has a really nice cadence to it that carries you along. This was the first time that I heard a Katy Perry song and I was like, okay, my defenses are down. Like this song is great. Yeah, same actually. You know what it really reminds me of is Tiffany's I Think We're Alone Now. Oh, sure. That's like kind of the texture of it, like that 80s synth pop anthem. Yeah. 
what I like about it is that it dispenses with the first two singles obsession with sort of like faux controversy. Like yes. it's proudly silly. It's proudly juvenile. And it's not trying to hit you over the head with some sort of imagined heavy handed flashpoint of controversy. Like it just is allowed to exist as a really fun, catchy pop song, yes. which I think a lot of Katie's post one of the boys hits do. They just allow you to just accept them on the most basic level without needing to lacquer on all of this other bullshit to like get people's attention. And it's just a pure synth pop electronica fluff with a great, incredible Dr. Luke Max Martin hook. It's undeniable in that way. I also actually like Waking Up in Vegas too, which definitely feels as you were sort of pointing out, like the part of this record that's still tied to her earlier work. Like it still feels like more in that rock forward vibe. I love what you already said about it. That's her version of being a bad girl. It's like she went out in Vegas and like got a little too drunk one night. <laughs> like that's her bad girl era. I like waking up in Vegas as well. And it's just what I said. There's kind of a sweetness to it that, as I've said, is not present on a lot of one of the boys. I think Katy Perry is at her best when she's optimistic. Yes. And I think a lot of one of the boys is so obviously cynical that I struggle with it as a fan of hers. And I think this is a song where not just her fun side, but the side of her that wants to bring you along mm. with her on the journey she's on as opposed to lecturing you comes through most clearly. Like a lot of the songs on One of the Boys, she has something of an ax to grind or a point she wants to make very forcefully. This is kind of just like, yeah, we had a fun night. Unencumbered. Exactly. It's for her by her standard. It's a pretty breezy song. I agree. And I like breezy Katie songs. I'm always a fan of breezy Katie songs. I've always liked like, this is how we do. Like I love Katie songs that are proudly just light and like not needing to go add more shit onto it. I think that's where she can get tripped up. So as we said, I Kissed a Girl, Smash number one, Hot and Cold number three, Waking Up in Vegas goes number 10, I think. So she's got three big hits from this record. The album is successful. As you said, it's happening in the midst of Gaga blowing up, Rihanna's like ramping up. Where did you think we saw Katie like post one of the boys? Like, was she seen in the same league as those girls? What was her sort of persona filling in that those girls weren't? What role was she playing in the broader kind of new generation of pop stars, do you think? So it's funny. I remembered this level of success, but I remember her as being at the bottom of the top tier, if that makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, Gaga emerged kind of fully formed and was a total out-of-the-box superstar. Yeah. Rihanna had a track record before and then reinvented herself with Umbrella and then spins off hit after hit off Good Girl Gone Bad. Katie got a lot of big looks like she performs at the Grammys. She gets nominated for Grammys. We'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think anyone seriously considered her not only as a potential contender for the crown. I don't think she was even in that conversation. I think it was just, she has some really fun songs to a degree, given her ambitions. It's not all about the visuals, but she kind of in a way did herself no favors with, for instance, the album cover or that she tended to perform in almost Halloween costumes in the <laughs> early going. And she eventually made that work to her great benefit, but it was a little bit like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, Gaga 
has a vision. Yeah. Rihanna is a bona fide hit maker. And the coolest person. And the coolest person alive. Katy Perry is for fun. Right. And I think that was the niche she served for those first couple years. And I think she was critically savage. Yes. I mean, I was going back and reading the contemporaneous reviews of this record. I mean, beyond just sort of like the lack of optimism, generally speaking, or whatever in this era. I mean, this record got fucking savaged by critics. Like Katy Perry was not taken seriously, like in the slightest. Some of these reviews are like, Perry's vocals sound like a less soulful Kelly Clarkson at best, a drunken spurned sorority girl at worst, wrote Genevieve Kosky in AV Club. I think saying bottom tier of the new generation felt right to me. Like I certainly did not see coming the next thing. I was not clear that like we were heading into a direction. Like I could have seen her disappearing. So Katie returns in 2010. I guess maybe we should start with the lead single from her second record, which is this song, California Girls, which I think to me essentially feels like a revelation for Katie in terms of her music. Let's talk about the image and sound of California Girls and what that says about like where Katie's heading, building upon, and maybe tossing out some of the aspects of one of the boys. I will never forget hearing California Girls for the first time, which is on <laughs> very early Twitter. I was studying for my last set of finals in college. And on very early Twitter, it was like a link to Katy Perry's website where you could like click and play it. Writing some essay, I was just listening to it over and over. I had no idea she had it in her. Like it really... Yeah set up the era so, so intelligently. It was the perfect choice of a lead single because it was all of the upbeatness that I think we can say is one of the better qualities of the parts of one of the boys that work, but expressed in this way that feels so carefree, feels so genuinely kind of bringing you along with her. It actually has a point and a point of view without being obvious or heavy handed about it. Relatively speaking, it's just a really, really strong pop song. It was the perfect way to kind of reintroduce herself without any of the baggage or any of the attempted controversy from her first era. I agree with you. I mean, I think this is essentially like the point where Katy Perry begins for me as like something that I could like even have any real sense of care for as an artist because this song is pure joy. And I think one of the things that makes it also really important is that it's the song that finally completely dispenses with the rock yes. vibe completely. This is like essentially more in conversation with Kesha's TikTok than anything else. Another Dr. Luke and Max Martin masterpiece of the era. But it's just a pure sugar rush, which is also underscored by the visual element, which is like Katie fully getting into the one of the boys, the song conceit, where she just completely reemerges as a candy coated Barbie doll, essentially. Like she's in the music video, which feels like a really critical part of this. In Candyland, she's as now as infamous shooting whipped cream out of her boobs. She's got the pink wigs on. I mean, some of that I wonder is like in response to the gagafication of the pop landscape, where it was like every pop girl in this moment had to take the sort of campiness factor up to a zillion and this was her version of doing that but it was the formation of the Katy Perry that we like think of and remember to this day more or less. I think the question of how much of Katy's aesthetic is responsive to Gaga the limit does not exist like I think that yeah. in a world where Gaga never came along Katy might have had all the same music but just presented herself very differently with that said you're absolutely right 
I mean, the album cover of Teenage Dream is a painting of her on a cloud of cotton candy. And more than even how important it is that, for instance, it certainly looks like the budgets have gone up. This is certainly most expensive and effective looking music video to date at that time. For sure. It's also just, it's candy. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. There's not a heaviness to it. There's not a weight to it. The impulses on one of the boys to try to be a version of Alanis, if that's even what she was still trying to do, we let it go. We are going to have some fun. Life does not need to be that hard. Yes. And I think it suits her well. She's not a person who is off the cuff funny. And so having a template in which she can be carefree that's set up for her is, I think, a really effective strategy for her. She's also edgeless, I think, at her core. And I think that this song is her releasing the guise of edge that would have to come with being an Alanis or even an Ashley or a Kelly. Like, she is at her most fluid when she just goes for the biggest, frothiest, glisteningest, shiniest, brightest version of pop music. And that's what California Girls is. It is so weightless in the best possible way. It's that rush of joy that makes the great Katy Perry songs work for you. It's done so well and with such verve that it, my defenses are down. You you cannot resist this song. The candy that is in that music video is felt in the music itself. It is the sugar rush. And I think that's what the Teenage Dream era felt like to me was like her being like, I get it. This is what this needs to be. Like I am going for the sheer sugar rush and I'm not going to pretend except maybe on a few little moments, which we'll get to. For the most part, in terms of the canonical songs that make this record up, she was like, I am not going to be burdened with the need to make anything more than that. And I think that that's what makes the great songs on this record so awesome, is like they are the purest iteration of weightless pop perfection. And like, that's what California Girls is. And frankly, that's what Teenage Dream, which I think many people consider her best song. I consider it her best song. I consider it maybe the best pop song of the century, maybe is also an incredible iteration of, but in a slightly different way. You said you remember the, where you were the first time you heard California Girls. I remember the first time I heard Teenage Dream. I was standing on 12th Street outside of my mom's apartment <laughs> and I hit play on it. And I was no Katy Perry acolyte. I was just like, this song is everything. I was just like, this song is the most perfect pop song I've ever heard. And without getting heavy handed with it, what's cool about this one is that it actually really effectively captures melancholy. Yes. Because she's not actually talking about being a teenager. She's talking about being an adult and getting to re-feel the feelings of falling in love that she had felt as a teenager. Yes. And I think that that's a very clever conceit for what is essentially like a very simple and light pop song. The construction of it is surprisingly intelligent, which is why I think it's a really good yeah. development of California Girls. Like it spins the ball forward in this very pleasing way. Where left kind of unsaid in the world of Teenage Dream is, you make me feel like I'm living a teenage dream. And of course the rest of my life is not that. His 
also, I'm not trying to find ways to make it depressing. It's more just that there's kind of- Wistfulness. Yes, it's wistful. It's certainly her most emotionally developed song to date. Yes. There's a real emotional intelligence to it, which is not something that I always associate with her work. It's nuanced, weirdly enough, like almost in spite of herself. Exactly. She lands in this place of nuance that, as is often the case with her, I'm not even totally sure that she's fully aware of. I'll also say that I think there are a lot of songs in which Katie does a very good job vocally on this record. I think it's a huge improvement. It's beautifully sung and you really feel her personality there without feeling as though she's fighting to be seen. There's a confidence to it that I think suits her very nicely. And what I love about it is the dynamic between the earnest vulnerability of the way she sings the verses, that kind of breathy thing. and then sort of punctuated by this extremely confident and syncopated chorus on the beat. You make me feel like I'm living a teenage dream. That's a very effective dynamism between verse and chorus and also an effective way to drive home the power of this just monster hook. I mean, it's just so amazing. And I think so much of the feeling you're talking about is encapsulated in the don't ever look back because the whole idea is like, let's cling on to this moment right now. Yes. If we take one look in either direction towards the past or the future, like this is ephemeral. We're never going to have this moment again. It's all about grabbing that moment rush because that is how so much of falling in love is that's how so many of the best things in life are it's like you know it's right now and you better fucking appreciate it in this moment because it's not gonna last forever and i think that's part of what makes this song such a powerful emotional experience that it captures it so well and i think it just features some of her finest lyrical flourishes like i love uh, let you put your hands on me in my skin tight jeans like what a great evocative image Definitely one of her best written songs. Like this is exactly where the cliches is that I was talking about earlier work. We'll be young forever, my skin tight jeans, going to Cali, getting drunk on the beach, got a motel and built a fort out of sheets. Like these are all massive cliches, but like they work here. And that's so much like Katie's thing. It's like she makes the cliches work for her in her best songs and not in her worst songs. There's really like honestly not enough good things I could say about the song. And whenever anybody gets on my case on the show about me not liking Katy Perry, I'm like, no, I love Katy Perry. I mean, I love, love, love this song. No caveats. No regrets, just love. No regrets, just love. So both of these songs are number one smashes. Katy Perry, essentially before this record ever comes out, I feel like has ascended to another tier of pop stardom. Like she no longer feels like maybe the also ran of this new generation of pop girls. Like it's clear that what's coming with the rest of this record is a pretty big expansion of like where Katy Perry was in the pop landscape. Let's talk about the rest of Teenage Dream. What is this record about? What's going on here? How does it build on what we've set up with these two records? Let's freestyle our way through the rest of these songs and what's going on here. So my big thought on the record is that it is maximalist is a great word, pure pop. It's sanding away all the edges and her persona such as it is, and it's still under development, is now 
coexisting and kind of expressing itself through the music. Sometimes I've thought on one of the boys, she's almost fighting the music right, in order to make herself understood. And pushing the voice so hard. Exactly. And to me, the album is about the concept of ambition, which is to say, mm. not only is it a huge swing to say, I'm going to deliver an album that can be an emotional journey through my highs and lows with also some pure euphoria mixed in, but also the degree to which it touches on her personal life. She is a complete perfectionist. She is ending relationships because they're not working. And it ends in this moment of doubt that the relationship she's in isn't perfect. And she has to kind of Mm. figure out whether or not that will work for her. And it's kind of unresolved. So you see it as like a concept album in a sense. I think that's, I mean, not concept album exactly. I just think if I were writing a retrospective review of it, I think that ambition expresses itself both in the music and in the lyric. Now this record is so unanimously thought of as this masterpiece of pop music. Yes. I don't experience it that way. To me, I see it as a series of amazing singles and a lot of songs that don't work that well in the mix of them. So it's like, okay, we've talked about Teenage Dream and California Girl, the two opening singles. You've got TGIF, which we also talked about a little bit, which is kind of like what I would say is like her version of Kesha. It's like a very sort of debauchery, but only in the lightest sense of the word. I share with you that this is my least favorite of the hits, although it's you know still a great song. There's, of course, Firework, which is a EDM ballad of some sort about essentially like a broad notion of self-love. Maybe the beginning of purposeful pop? Yes, I mean, I think that in the years since Firework, it has pretty obviously become like her signature song, whether it ought to be or not. And I think in seeing the kind of long lasting success it's had, I think she's returned to that well and never struggled again. Firework is not a song I would affirmatively choose to listen to. I don't find it offensive. It's just not for me. But it's pretty amazing the life that song has had. I agree. In terms of when she kind of at a moment, she was nowhere in her career sang that song after the Biden inauguration, I was just kind of like, she will do this every four years for the rest of our lives because it just has that second life. And I think to a degree, the long life of Firework is one of the reasons why people remember Teenage Dream so fondly. I'm actually with you. Teenage Dream is not my favorite of her album, nor do I think it totally works. I think the highs, which is to say all the singles more or less, are really high. And I think there's a lot of songs on it especially in the second half, that just fall flat for me. Like that stretch of Pearl, Hummingbird, Heartbeat, and Who Am I Living For, which is probably the most about ambition of all the songs on the record, there are a lot of skips for me.
Who Am I Living For sort of reimagines the biblically driven sense of destiny and good and evil of the Katie Hudson album in the context of like grade A pop production. But let's just say that opening run of four number one singles in a row, no one can take that away from No way. And that really encapsulates the conceit of this record. I mean, that is Max, Luke, Katie, Bonnie McKee at their just absolute apex. I guess Stargate is working on Firework, but essentially that's the core team that's working on these records. They just are very canonical pop records of that moment. But also, I mean, things that don't work for me, I think Peacock is a nightmare. What I really like about the first four singles, and I think something that we've been speaking about a little bit, is they dispense with the, the faux controversy, right? It's like, yes. you've got California Girls, we've talked about it. you got Teenage Dream, we talked about it. Firework is pure open-heartedness. Again, I think the idea of ambition with Firework is really apt. I really just want to underscore, I think that was a really smart idea. Firework's almost about like desire, redemption. Yes, you're not just going to be fine love, you're going to be a superstar. Exactly. And it's very earnest, right? Yes. And even TGIF, which sort of like gestures at contrary, I think winkingly knows it's silly. It's not I kissed a girl. It's not you're so gay. It's like, it doesn't feel like she's trying to be controversial necessarily. It's more silliness. Peacock drives me crazy because it's back to sort of like that faux coquettish provocateur shit. Gwen Stefani gesturing, but she's not Gwen Stefani. To come off of those four singles and then hit Peacock, if you're trying to listen to this record in order, is like... I think Peacock is funny. I, <laughs> I'm an idiot. I think Peacock is no! funny. I, when she says, I just shed a tear, I was so unprepared. It makes me laugh. I don't listen, like, if I'm listening to Teenage Dream end to end, I probably skip it, but it's not a guarantee. Like, it does make me laugh. I wrote this song, Murders Hey Mickey, the same way I kissed a girl did Gary Glitter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I despise this song. There are songs she has on this record that I like a lot less. I think Peacock, I understand why. And I also think for a lot of people, when they talk about like, it's crazy that this was nominated for album of the year. The reason why is specifically that Peacock. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> no, when people say that, the reason why is yeah, specifically yeah. Peacock. I don't have a big issue with Peacock. I have more of an issue <laughs> with the songs on the album that I think are just boring or heavy-handed i think sometimes when she starts to try to do more than she's capable of doing in terms of heft that heavy-handedness drags down circle the drain which is another song that i really do not care for same That's her last real stab at Alanis vibes there. She's definitely like got Alanis in mind there for the last time. I think she, maybe she realized like that was it for that part of her career or something. I like think that. when you hear it within the context of this generally upbeat and optimistic album, it so sticks out that I think it's obviously directed at a specific ex. And I think she had to get it out of her system. And then once you hear it in context, it's jarring and discordant. She must have understood that because she never does anything like that again. Let's talk about the two iconic singles, other two singles from this record, which are E.T. and the one that got away. Two pretty different songs. Let's start with the one that got away, which I think is kind of like a sister song to Teenage Dream in some ways. A wistful song that uses cliche to its advantage. I mean, the one that got away, a cliche, but also some of her best lyrics. Sitting on the Mustang, listening to Radiohead, yes. getting the matching tattoos. Some of her best lyrical flourishes on the song that transports you to the same love affair as Teenage Dream. 
Not to go here yet, but it's the closest I think Katie has ever come to writing a Taylor Swift song in the sense that- A hundred percent. It actually uses specific detail to great effect. I think it's a really strong song. I mean, this album has the hooks. I mean, this is why people see this as the platonic ideal of a Katie album. It's like, yes, there's clunkers on here, but like this song comes with the fucking hooks. This hook is so good. And then E.T., genuinely weird-ass fucking song. I gotta say, like, on a record that really goes for, like, pure pop maximalism, not super challenging on a sonic or aesthetic level, like, this is a very strange-sounding beat that Dr. Luke made for 3-6 Mafia originally. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, this is the, the biggest kind of experimental swing of the record, I feel like. Yeah, I have in my notes here that it's kind of stretching the limits of what a Katy Perry song can even be. 100%. For all that Teenage Dream is the ultimate lab-tested album, there are multiple multiple moments on the album Circle the Drain is one, Peacock is another for better or worse, where she's kind of testing out, okay, what do you want from me? What is Katy Perry? And this is one of those moments. I'm a little, in retrospect, surprised it hit as big as it did. I think it's kind of the power of her as a steamroller, her being Imperial at that moment, if we want to say that. It's that she carried the song along because it's pretty weird. This would never have worked except as like single number five or whatever this was from this record. She was on such a monumental run at this point that she could have put out any of these songs and I think they would have been smashes. Like Absolutely. this is the definition of an imperial phase. She could have put literally Circle the Drain or Peacock out and that shit probably would have hit number one. Yes. The songs that work on this album are like when she drives right at the core sort of like pop things. It's like yes. falling in love, the rush of falling in love and then sort of like you're amazing and like love yourself. Like when she just hits those broad topics on this record, she hits home runs. Whenever she tries to go for anything with more bite or sort of nuance to it, I feel like that's when the seams start to show in her capacities as a writer. That is a major stumbling block for her because it is a very natural and understandable impulse to say, I've had these hits. Let me complicate the formula. Let me try something new. The problem is just that's not where she excels. No, but you have to do that. You have to figure out a way to get out of your zone. This is the conundrum that she's in. Can she work it all outside of this particular little box and formula? And you have to, if you're going to have a long pop career, you have to figure out how to do that. This record is so successful that we forget that there's moments that represent the fact that she's going to struggle more and more with this as the rest of her discography unfurls, I think. But here in this moment when this album was happening, and when she was just hitting the zeitgeist in this really particular way where clearly society wanted a pop star to just give you that sugar rush, to give you that most incredible distillation of the most basic pop music values at the most maximalist level possible. She was just the perfect vessel for that. It was a perfect meeting of 
artist and moment and she will for whatever we're about to talk about for all of the interesting and uh less savory paths that her career is about to follow there's no one that can ever take away from the fact that she had one of the most important and most impactful pop records of that decade right here in this moment. And I will leave this section of the conversation on the reveal that I absolutely love Hummingbird Heartbeat. Sorry. Give me that hummingbird heartbeat. Spin my wings and make me fly. The taste of your honey is so sweet. When you give me the hummingbird heartbeat, hummingbird all right, y'all, that's it. Katy Perry, episode one. We will be back next week, same time, same day. For part two, we'll be talking about Prism. We will most certainly be talking about Witness. And yes, we will touch on Smile. And we will rank Katy Perry officially once and for all in the pop pantheon. So you don't want to miss that. I'll see you here next week. Thank you so, so much to Daniel D'Addario for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you so, so much to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. And thank you to the wonderful Seth Kelly for his help editing this episode. And I will see you guys next week. Have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.